So the most uh, powerful thing about our faith, of course, is the resurrection. And the resurrection is, is a living power now. One of the things we have to do every so often is we have to remind ourselves that the mysteries of Jesus are alive and influencing us now. So a lot of times we think of Jesus like Abraham Lincoln, someone in the past. And then we, we think about Jesus like, oh yeah, I'll think about Jesus, that guy who lived in Nazareth. But all those mysteries are present now in you. In you. Other times we think it's only happening right here. So everything is externalized. But since baptism and then with the added grace of the sacrament of marriage and then all the Eucharist you've been receiving, celebration of sacrament of reconciliation, your acts of charity over how many decades, that mystery of Jesus' resurrection is in you. And everything that perhaps you're expecting from God that will look supernatural and transcendent will probably never happen. What's going to happen is the incarnation over and over again. Where we began on Friday talking about the ordinary, the incarnation, Jesus meeting you in the folds of your ordinary lives. That's where the sanctity is going to unfold. I don't know if you've ever made a pilgrimage to like a saint's house or something, but a lot of times they're inherently disappointing. And they're so disappointing that people built churches, churches where they where they were, or where they should be, or they turned it into a church for both holy reasons and I think also psychological reasons. Because if we just pulled up the pilgrim bus to the saint's house, we'd say, it's just a house. Or if you go to monasteries where saints live, then they'll usually put the saint's room you know, separate. They'll put a little sign on the door or something. And you get to look in it. You can't go in it, but you get, get to look in it. And it's just a bed and a chair. You say, I came all the way to Europe for this. See a bed and a chair? Yeah. You know, what did you expect? Well, I expected something supernatural and transcendent. Something out of the ordinary, something colossal. No. Because sanctity is the continual appropriation of the mystery of the Incarnation. Bethlehem is inherently disappointing. It's, there's a church there, and then you go downstairs, and then you, uh, we think this is the spot where the stable was. Why didn't you leave the stable there for one reason? It would have been cool to see it. And second of all, when you get down there, there's nothing. It's kind of an empty room with a star on the floor. Came all to Israel for this. And then invariably, when you go on these pilgrimages, the only thing you do really is go to Mass. Hey, I had Mass in Bethlehem. 
Yeah, well, we had Mass in Waverly. Hey, I had Mass in Jerusalem. Yeah, well, so did we. Then you think, why did I go all the way to Israel for Mass? Archbishop Lucas wanted the deacon program to be sort of out in the middle of the archdiocese. So he asked me to go to the Benedictine Monastery there in Norfolk. And um, I think the first time I went out there, I think I went through Schuyler and then went north. And I passed through Rogers or Richards. Do you know that little town? And uh, after a while, I met somebody who lived there once. And uh, it was in the Rogers area or whatever. Some little town that just has, you know, the pizza place. What's the name of that pizza store? Casey's, right? Every little town has a Casey's. That's how you know when you're in civilization. Oh, there's a Casey's. I feel safe. I can have gas and I can have and I can have pizza. So, and then they have a grain elevator. So you have Casey's, you have a grain elevator. So as I said, I'm, I was a jerk from New York, and these are nightmares that I used to have, is that, you know, people actually lived there. You know, because you, know, you live in New York City, people make fun of Nebraska. Ha ha, terrible place to live. Nothing's there. And you think, what could be there, you know? A weird gas station that sells pizza and a grain elevator. Yeah, it's there. And people live there. And so I met one of them. And at first she frightened me because she lived there all her life. See, now that's another arrogant New York thing. You don't live. You always have to keep moving. Because moving is a sign that you're cool. To live in one place is a sign that you're a failure, you're a nerd, something wrong with you, loser. So I met this nerdy, loser, failure woman who lived in this same place. She fell in love with a man who lived in the same place. He might have worked in the grain elevator. And uh, she had kids. Of course, the kids didn't stay there. They got out. And then he died, as husbands do. Thanks a lot, guys. You know, we're always dying first. So get ready, ladies. Your prayers will be answered. <laughs> you know, there's a thousand women who are like, why did he just check out on me like that? So anyway, we're always dying first. So she, um, she lived there by herself. And I talked to her because, you know, this is about 12, 13 years ago. Because I was curious about how could someone do it. I don't think I was rude, but I was pretty close to being rude. I said, you know, how could you possibly do this? And the story that unfolded was the story basically of the incarnation. It, it was simply that with her husband and with her kids and with the parish church that was nearby. I don't think the town has its own, but it was nearby. And she had some type of part-time job when the kids got older. And her husband's job, I think, in the grain elevator. And they had friends. That everything she needed in life was there. Everything she needed in life was there. Now, that's to some extent thanks to the Catholic imagination. 
She had a very Catholic imagination. Because when she said that everything that she needed in life was there, she meant her sacraments. She was without need. All her needs were fulfilled. She had friends. She had family. And she was living within the sacraments, particularly marriage, but mass, confession. And then whatever charitable service she did in that geographic area. The fullness of her life was lived there. So if she's ever canonized, people will pull up to the Casey's and say, you know, where's where's St. Hildegard of uh, Rogers living? Oh, she's over in this little house here. What? I came all the way to Nebraska to see this. See what? See holiness. And what is holiness? Holiness is the capacity to receive God. It doesn't matter. The geographic area. Holiness is the capacity fulfilled to receive God. So one of the things I like to tell people is, please lower your expectations. All the artificial idolaters are always telling us to raise our expectations. And then you read life stories of people who followed this dream of higher expectations, and they actually got to the castle. And you've heard the expression, right? It's lonely at the top. So maybe they started in Rogers, Nebraska, and they went all the way to the corner office in Manhattan. And all the relationships that were broken to get there. And maybe all the violations of virtue. And they finally got their corner office and looked out the window. And it tasted um, surprisingly ordinary. Because uh, once uh, the, the tinsel and the sparkly things are gone off the wrapping paper, everyone still lives on the planet Earth. Even the people that you are envious of right now. I drive with my grandfather sometimes when we lived in New York, and I would say, oh, look at that house, you know. How beautiful, Grandpa, look at that. And he would say, eh, they're not that happy. They're not that happy. I would say, they have to be happy. Look at that. They have an in-ground swimming pool. Nope. And, you know, then he'd keep driving. And as I grew older, I realized, yeah, they're not that happy. The leaving behind in the name of, you know, excitement, breath, uh, expansive life. And you think of the lady in Rogers, all she did was keep going deep. She kept going deep. Burying herself into the sacramental grace. And in that way, like we talked about last night, she was like a nun. We're all monks and nuns. And the beautiful grace of the monk and the nun is that they bury themselves deep into the sacramental grace and they find rest and peace there. Would you please be evangelists 
for lowering your expectations. Most people are in therapy because of expectations that were artificially heightened and they're carrying disappointment and stress. And lowering your expectations, because as Americans we immediately get defensive about that. Are you saying I'm not supposed to reach my, my apex? Yes, go ahead and reach your apex. But it's the worshiping of it. It's the blindness leading you there. And one of the most beautiful things happily married couples can give to the church is that sense of being happily married, not ecstatically joyful or insufferably cheery all the time. In fact, that's annoying. But to be happily married and to actually say to people, yes, I live in Rogers, Nebraska, and I'm damn happy. One of the first things they'll do is say, I don't believe you. And then the second thing they'll say is, Really? That's when the evangelization starts. Really? You're really happy? Where? In the ordinary? Yes. Why? Because I have everything. People I know, you know, who live in the big cities, and especially, you know, I've got teenagers, and they always said... No, I'm going to go live in New York City. Great. Why? Broadway's there. Great. People who live in New York City don't go to Broadway. They go once, twice, every five years. Big museums are there. Oh, good. People don't go there. Heck, I live in Omaha. I don't go to the museum that much. There's a big museum there. <laughs> Humans make their world uh, small. In fact, when you live in a big city and you daydream about it, you actually create a little neighborhood. When you talk to people, I had a friend who lived in Manhattan on St. Mark's Place. What do you do all day, Vince? Well, you know, I go to my apartment, then I go to work. Hey, I do that. And then maybe I'll walk around the block and I'll get some groceries. Hey, I do that. And then sometimes I'll go to the movies or I'll go have a bite to eat. Hey, I do that. So he's doing that in Manhattan. I'm doing that somewhere else. Our worlds get shrunk down. And the the disappointment that we carry in our heart is a satanic temptation to darkness, to despair, to I'm a failure, to whatever it may be. This is the great Catholic imagination, right? If you die a saint, you have everything, including Broadway. If you die a saint, you have everything. That lady in Rogers has everything. Because the capacity we have to receive God, in God, everything that is good is in him. And everything that is good that is in God is what we were created to rest in and be satisfied with. So do yourself a favor and cut out any nonsense about somehow thinking you missed the boat. The only boat we're ever going to miss is whether or not we truly drank deeply from the sacramental life and stayed there, stayed there, stayed there, receiving God.
And for any problems that may develop or persistent problems that are in our marriages now, we have to learn better to draw from resurrection power. The incarnation is always happening. We are always meeting Christ in his ministry, in his cross, and in his resurrection. And we're always meeting him there in the conditions of our circumstances of our life. Just turning the will a little, Jesus. Just turn the will a little, Jesus. And all those mysteries reverberate and are stirred up so that you can receive them again where they abide in your baptized heart. The resurrection power is not a fantasy or a myth. The resurrection power is uh, the very dynamo that is God's love. That's why when you're on your deathbed, you won't be afraid and hopefully you'll go out like a candle being blown out and not kicking and screaming. Because on your deathbed, that power of resurrection will have been cultivated in you through your life. And you'll be receiving the hope of everlasting life. Now again, we said the opposite of that is Netflix. So go home tonight and just watch a Netflix show and see Taste of Despair if you can get through one of them. And you'll see and you'll get a glimpse and you'll feel what's it like to live without the resurrection. And it's all around us in our fellow citizens who are, who are encased in time and have triumphantly announced that after you die, nothing happens. They have you know, imbibed deeply of a new and a different religion, the religion of despair. And these are the people that are waiting for your marriage. Remember, the last part of marriage is hospitality to others. Church is very clear in this, in its understanding in the catechism of the family. That the family is supposed to be hospitable. Now, it doesn't say how we're supposed to be hospitable. It's just supposed to say that love always is gracious, pouring itself out for others. In your own marriages, you all have to discern what hospitality looks like. But some people might say, hey, I'm hospitable enough, I got kids. But it's more. It's more. And again, this more is sustained by the resurrection power. To be generous in welcoming others, especially in this culture, where people have already decided despair is the, the capital that we trade on. It is very important for you to discern together, how is our home going to be a hospitable church? And again, it may take place in your physical home, or it may just take place in your relationship, in some other venue where you are practicing hospitality. Because that which is good wants to diffuse itself to others. And there's nothing more good than those who have been receiving God 
And so it wants to diffuse itself to others. And the crucifixion and the resurrection kind of hang together always, right? Inside the crucifixion is the resurrection. It wasn't like A and B. Inside your suffering is the resurrection. So when you're suffering your husband or when you're suffering your wife and you're on the cross, and remember what the cross is, the cross is just the capacity to meet evil with love. When you're meeting evil with love, when your husband or your wife is sinning against you, when you're meeting evil with love, the resurrection is already in that suffering. It's waiting to be uh, called forth by your fidelity to it. And so the whole mystery of Jesus is in your choice to do what? I think I'm going to stay with this woman, even though many times she is my enemy. And remember, Jesus said very, very clearly, you must love your enemy. And oftentimes, as spouses, we are one another's enemy, even if it's just a half hour. But we are. And so as I try to meet evil with love, the resurrection is kicking in already in my what? Fidelity to that suffering. The fidelity to that suffering of meeting evil with love rather than kicking your spouse to the curb is the hope of the ministry of the family. And when you die and we bury you in Rogers, people will come and look at your house and they'll be inherently disappointed because it's just going to be ordinary. But in that ordinariness has been Nazareth and Bethlehem and Jerusalem and Calvary and the resurrection. It's all been in that house because in that house, the sacramental life defined reality. So if we lower our expectations, heaven will be given. Most people have very high expectations, and by that I mean they're grabbing because of insecurity, fear, fantasy. They're trying to get heaven now. And it always slips through their fingers. And we have the capacity right now to go home today and sit in the worst chair you have and feel how bad it is. I've got one in my house where the bottom's coming through it. And I keep thinking, should I go to Nebraska Furniture Mart soon? And then I think, well, I don't know. The chairs are really expensive. So I keep sitting in it. Go home and sit in that chair and kind of feel the ordinariness of your own house your own life, and then be vulnerable to receive Nazareth, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, all the mysteries of Jesus into your heart in that chair. It will become your anchor for not being a fool and for continually going deep into the mystery that God has already given you, wife, husband, kids, sacraments, Don't be a fool. Embrace, receive the depths of that beauty. 
And it is a great paradox that someday somebody will come by your house in a pilgrim bus and um, say, why'd you, why'd you turn her chapel, why'd you turn her bedroom into a chapel? But it will happen, and it will happen in that ordinariness. And even if the pilgrim bus never shows up and you're not a canonized saint, it'll be the same mystery that you live that the canonized saint lives. So don't dream of going anywhere. Just choose to go deep. Stop dreaming and start living. Most of the tears at funerals are people's regret that they didn't live the life that was given them. And now it's over. So live the life that God is giving you. Be happy. Especially the younger couples in here. Be happy. Keep claiming each other as spouses. doesn't matter what your mother and father say, your grandparents. Just say, I'm in love with this guy. Shut up. And stop getting in the way of my happiness. You don't have to say the shut up part. But stop getting in the way of my happiness. Jesus is very clear that we have a right to be happy together in him. And if we're parents and we're kind of graspy parents, let go. Let the kids have their own life. Let them either fall, rise, be happy, be sad. Stop poking around. And it's good to listen to one or the other spouse when that happens. There's a story that I told other people, but it always reminds me of why we're married and why it's helpful to have a spouse because we might be doing great damage to our kids. And I remember once um, when the kids were real little, they had those orange, uh, orange and yellow tyke toys all over the front yard. And uh, every day I would go out and say, clean this mess up. Yeah, daddy, we'll do it. And they never did. So one day I was just, you know, displaced anger, psych 101. I was mad at something else and I decided to take it out on our ready victim, namely my children. So disproportionate anger. I've told you a million times, pick up these lousy, ugly, stupid toys off the front lawn. And they were like paralyzed with fear because I was not saying it gentle like I'm doing now. And then Marianne came up next to me and she just said, do you want a relationship with them when they're 21? And then she just left. See, that's the beauty of marriage. And now they're all 21 and I have a relationship with them. And I miss the tight toys on the front lawn. Right? That's the pathetic nature of being human. This sense is that we are, what's the original word? Helpmates. Helpmates. And in that original word of helpmates really was a, a, a divine implication. In other words, help for what? help you to be holy. It wasn't helping with the dishes. It was helping to stay in relationship. So Eve was given to Adam so she could help him stay in relationship with her and with God. We are to help one another stay in relationship. And if we can pray for a grace today at Mass, it would be this. When my spouse tells me the truth about me, Give me the courage 
to receive it. If we would just live on that grace alone, happiness would grow exponentially. Lord, give me the grace that when my spouse speaks the truth about me, that I receive it. Probably one of the most difficult crucifixions psychologically that we undergo is the um, growing capacity to receive the truth quickly and readily rather than fighting it and being defensive about it. It's such a beautiful grace when you see it. Bob, I think you're really acting like a jerk now. Oh, am I? I'm sorry. Isn't that beautiful? Bob, I think you're really acting like a jerk now. Oh, me? I'm acting like a jerk? Here we go. There goes the whole night. Someone's going to yell or someone's going to have silent treatment. It could have all ended right at the beginning. Hey, Bob, I think you're acting like a jerk. Am I? I'm sorry. What a grace. And that grace, of course, becomes a memory. And then that memory becomes a deeper glue for intimacy. And then we begin to admire each other for our mutual holiness and virtue. And you can hear couples talk like this about each other. When, of course, the one is not there. But you can hear them say the virtues they admire in each other. And it builds it up and it makes the person also fall more deeply in love with you. And again, the power of the resurrection is in the Eucharist. When you receive the Eucharist, you're receiving the power of the resurrection. So when you ask a prayer like that, would you please give me the grace to receive the truth about myself? The power of the resurrection is going to assist you there. So let's be with Jesus just for a few minutes. And then uh, after that, if we have any questions or conversation, or if you have a grace you want to share, we can do that. So just uh, two couple parting truths, if you will. Um, the first one is whatever state your prayer life is in now, don't despair. It really is a matter of showing up. Just show up. If you stop showing up, that's the worst thing. And without the foundation of prayer, of course, then your, your intimacy with God will not be foundational for your intimacy with your spouse and all the turbulence that may be there. So never give up on prayer. Keep showing up. Second, practice your skills of listening. Listening is the um, other side of the adhesive to self-revelation, which is the origin of intimacy. So this is crucial to listen. Remember, some of you might have taken classes. They used to have classes where people would practice listening and they would always say, you know who adopted this? Maybe anybody do a marriage encounter? They adopted this. I've been on one a long time, but they would say, okay, let your spouse speak for as long as she wants and don't say anything. That's a good practice. Just don't say anything. Just listen. 
Go home and, and practice that if, if your listening is weak. And remember, it's the same skill in prayer that you're going to use in conversation with your spouse, primarily listening. And uh, the last important thing, I think, is that uh, we are a church or a faith of great hope, but we're also a church of martyrdom where sometimes love actually kills you. In other words, your acts of love lead to your death. Now, it's inevitable in marriage that acts of love are leading to the death of your ego. Whenever there's love, something's going to die. And what you have to do is you have to let your spouse kill your ego. Just like Padre Pro, who just had a his feast day recently, just kind of stand up against the kitchen wall like he did when he was shot. And just let your wife kill your ego. It has to happen before you're dead or you'll go to hell or you'll go to purgatory. So as she's killing your ego, just kind of say, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to purgatory. I'll be there right now with you, honey. You are hell, honey. And let her, let her kill you. Just let her kill you. Let that fat, relentless ego drain out onto the floor. Better at her hands, St. Catherine of Siena and St. Catherine of Genoa said, than in purgatory. Americans always think purgatory is like waiting for a delayed bus or something. It's not. You want to go to heaven. And so, to some extent, we've been given the sacrament of marriage to be our purgatory. Not all the time, but regularly. Living with someone is ordered by grace to assist in the death of your ego. So let them, let it die. Something has to die in love because we're not in heaven yet. So let the ego die. Yeah, doing big things for God. Yeah. Um, remember, the big things for God are usually the hidden things that are being given, not just the distinction I made before. God is giving you things. Uh, don't mistake that for you initiating or taking. That's what discernment is all about. You're discerning if God is giving. Are you giving me this opportunity? Or am I taking it? And usually when we take it, it all falls apart. And so God may want you to do great things. You know, maybe, I don't know, Father Flanagan started Boys Town. In hindsight, we say, that's a great thing, right? But that was God's will given to him. It wasn't something that he decided on his own to shore up a shaky ego that needed affirmation. It's very different. So when God wants you to do great things for him, remember the first great thing he wants you to do is stay faithful in your marriage in the hidden ordinariness of those days. That is the greatest thing. Why? Because it is the fulfillment of your, of your sacrament. And what's the sacrament? The sacrament is the easiest way that God has given you to become a saint. Notice he didn't call you to be a priest, a monk, or a nun. Why? Because you would have blown it. Because it wouldn't have been easy. And you're saying, 
Are you telling me this marriage is easy? Yeah, go try and be a nun. If you were in the wrong sacrament, it would be miserable. But if you discerned well and you're in the right sacrament, the sacrament itself is never the cross. The cross has come within the sacrament. If you discerned poorly, the sacrament is a cross. And that's a problem. You need to talk to someone about that. But if you discerned properly that you want to be married, you're happy. That's how you can stand the crosses that come within it. So we don't uh, take things to become great. We have to realize that God measures greatness very differently. And the greatest thing we can do is be faithful to the sacrament. Sounds very unexciting. It is unexciting, but it's true. That is the truth. The greatest thing you can do is become saints within your marriage. But God may have something that he's giving to you that you have to discern. Yeah, especially the not realizing part, because a lot of times we are unconscious of our own flaws and how those flaws are hurting our, our spouse. So again, Psych 101 comes in very handy here, and it is basically how you deliver the message. Um, delivering the message in the old Psych 101 way of, hey, Bobby, when you do X, I feel... That's probably the best way to deliver it. So... When you come in, you know, with a Casey's pizza and eat it all in front of a Netflix without me, I feel used and left out. So when you do this, I feel this. And that at least is the beginning of the awakening of the consciousness like, hey, am I a selfish slob? Rather than you saying, you're a selfish slob. Because that will always bring up defensive mechanisms. So I feel this action has affected me this way, gives the person who's receiving the truth about themselves time to let it germinate. And that time could be maybe even just 30 seconds to a minute. And they comes to realize, oh my gosh, do you want a piece of pizza? So it is in the tone and the approach. It is never a case where we are not called to point out faults. That's one of the reasons we get married. The promotion of the moral conversion of our spouse. So there are many, many times, and all the other couples in here could do the same, but there are many, many times where Marianne delivered the truth to me. And in hindsight, you know, I say before the Blessed Sacrament, thank God I married her. Because I don't know if anyone else would have delivered it. And it's just a beautiful part of the ministry of love in a marriage. When you say to your spouse, that behavior is beneath your dignity as a Catholic and as my husband. That's a great grace. And it's saving him. It's saving her. It's your duty. It is not something extra added on. It's your duty. That's why you were brought together.
Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's, you know, with the exhibit A in your arm there, um, this is, uh, I mean, to some extent, right? Um, and I'll say this too starkly, but it, the, the truth is in it. When the babies are that small and the sort of spousal love kind of takes a background, to some extent, uh, you know, Matt has to suck it up. There is a, there is a real season where um, Jesus is asking us, and the birth of babies is the biggest season of this, but the, the, the season of, oh yeah, my needs can't be the immediate consciousness of my wife. And anyway, Jim, Matt, Jesus should be meeting a lot of your emotional needs in prayer. And at times that really brings up consciousness that, wow, I have not been receiving consolation from God deep enough. My prayer is really superficial. And I keep making my wife feel guilty because she's not paying attention to me. And I should be praying more deeply to more deeply serve her needs during this time where she is preoccupied with kids. So again, the cross looms very large here. There is no, oh, we all win in this situation and there's a way of arranging everything where people are all satisfied. No. With kids, you're going to suffer. Now, here's the dangerous part. And and this is the, the complication of it. That if the mother or if the father becomes disproportionately involved in the kids, yes, the spousal bond will weaken. And so that's why there's a give and a take. Because in the giving and the taking of child care, you're actually preserving the spousal bond. Because if one was left to it alone, then that bond would grow weak because the husband or the wife would go looking for consolation elsewhere all the time. And then the closeness would dissipate. So the sharing of, I'm angry, I hate babies, I hate you, Matt, never come near me again, I'm leaving you. And then him saying, I hate you too, I hate babies, I didn't want this. Oh, I love you, look how beautiful our baby is. All of that articulation, back and forth, back and forth, you're actually fighting the bond from dissolving. You're fighting the bond from dissolving. Because what you're doing there, it looks like childcare, but you're actually preserving your love for each other. You're actually protecting what we talked about the other night, staying in love. But that constant communication between the two of you. And you know that half the time, too, you can't, you can't believe what the other person is saying. That's, that's great wisdom. And to have a very short memory is great wisdom. To have, don't... Pray for a short memory. So again, this is seasons, right? So you have to be very patient with yourself about the seasons. And in this season, you're adoring the Lord in Liam. And your service to Liam is adoration of God because Liam's your greatest gift. And, and Liam came directly from God. And so when you care for Liam... 
And uh, believe me, I know that you're praying when you're caring for Liam. So your connection, just like the question in the back, your connection to God is happening in your unselfish attention to Liam. And there'll be another season when you can go back to adoration. But motherhood is not a rival to prayer. Motherhood is not a rival to devotions. Motherhood is your intrinsic way to sanctity. And when things uh, settle down or different schedules appear, then you can, you know, with great joy, return to the devotions that you love. But this could be a a little door that opens for you to uh, enter despair. So Jesus wants you to close that door right now and just, just leave it alone. Yeah, and that's a great image, right? Make this sink the altar. And it could be sink, it could be whatever your job is, whatever it could be. You're making it, you know, I'm offering. The old thing, used to, there used to be something called a morning offering. And your, your whole life, your whole body would become worship to God. That's very important. And that's not just poetry. That is true. Your duty, right? That's the old word. Your duty as mom, as husband, as wife, always takes precedent over devotion. And when you're doing it in Christ, you're not losing any grace that you would have received in adoration. No grace is lost. You're not sitting there thinking, oh, I really need to get there. No, you need to open your heart at the sink and at changing diapers, and you're at adoration. Yes, good. Thank you. Remember, don't, the worst enemy is despair. And that's what he wants you to do. He wants you to give up everything. So creative ideas like, you know, the sink is the altar and I stop in for a visit. Yes. And especially, again, the younger couples, you have kids or you're going to have kids in the future. You might have memories of yourself, your parents bringing you to church. Just visiting the church with the Blessed Sacrament fills the imagination of a child to be Catholic. So as often, it doesn't matter how long you stay, but as often as you can, oh, we're going to make a visit to the church. They love it. Kids are natural contemplatives, and they love going. So if you have that memory as a child too, continue it, uh, because it, it anchors. And I always say that for the, all of us who have kids who don't worship anymore, when we're in purgatory, we'll smile, because um, we'll see our son or our daughter going back to Mass. Why? Because we made visits to the church. It'll kick in their memory. The sacred memory will kick in. Yes, he really does. And, you know, we always throw this around. Jesus loves us. So he really does love us. So that means he is interested in anything you want to tell him at any time. And the intimacy between you and Jesus grows deeper when you draw him into the ordinary details of spousal love and motherhood and fatherhood. That's... That's where the glue between you and Jesus really adheres. Share everything with him. Keep talking. So your example of not going to holy hour anymore. As you're changing Liam's diaper, you're saying, Jesus, I really miss holy hour. Um, Help me with that grief that I feel about missing you. And just talk it through with Jesus. 
And that intimacy between the two of you is going to deepen. It's okay, yeah. Jesus is going to come to you in the life. Don't think he's forgetting you. Just re- Our only duty is to remain disposed to be vulnerable, to receive him, wherever you are, wherever you are. Um, good, thank you. I th- maybe I was thinking I should have a retreat for empty nesters. That might be fun. <laughs> How, what do we do with each other now? That's, that's what we'll call the retreat. <laughs> what do we do? <clears throat> so, but anyway, you young folks, it's fine. It's great. It's, it's all beautiful. It's just beautiful. You know, I always say to Marianne, because now we're just about alone, and I always say to her when she gets mad at me, I said, well, remember the days when you just wanted me all alone for yourself? You got it, babe. Right? You got it. Your prayer has been answered. I am here all the time now for you. So be careful what you pray for.